Not everything metal was created equal. What an ugly thing to say. The Metal Sucks Podcast. Shiggity Chuck and Godless attempt to bring order to chaos or just make stupid jokes about dumb people. Stupid. A person below normal intelligence. This is the Metal Sucks Podcast. Greetings and salutations, my fine metal friends. Yeah. Welcome to another edition of the Metal Slugs Podcast. I am a Chickity Chuck. I'm Godless, as are and we all. And this is your weekly examination of all things metal right here from MetalSucks.net, as well as, uh, yeah, MetalSucks.net. <laughs> there you go. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little uh, zoned out today. I'm still recovering from my birthday bash on uh-huh. Friday, so... Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. I'm not. I'm not that hungover. I, I thought I would be a hell of a lot worse. We man. got the show to do in the wake of a party like that. <sighs> what? Because it's oh, like, yeah, I know. All right? the hard Loaded heavy lifting down. is done. It's already done. It's already <laughs> done. We got we got a great interview coming up on this episode uh, with Paul Mas- Masvidal. There we go. I got to say it right. Paul Masvidal from Cynic and death to all and so many other things and honestly curios i was so uh, happy to talk to this guy <laughs> big and, red soda i yeah, mean he's like all he does everything yeah. man. uh such fanboys you know to say the least to love the guy he's such a such a great great musician to say the least but then also like learn to be he's, he's a pretty good dude too <laughs> it's like that's kind of awesome so we're only playing one song so yeah week. we're only going to do one song off the new cynic album today uh, uh, on the podcast we'll play our interview with uh paul here in little bits uh, and all that stuff maybe i don't know what the hell else we're going to talk about we'll figure Machine it out dude. make sure you uh subscribe to us on itunes uh just to search metal sucks podcast you'll find it subscribe come right to your uh, little device there or of course every monday we post it up on metal sucks.net comments are and good. all that stuff man follow us on twitter i'm at bearded ape you are at godless speaks on twitter so that's uh show maintenance we wanted to talk about machine head right is that what the, right but first we got to talk about this party uh, of yours oh uh, dude uh, you what? pack them in it was actually pretty good right it, it was, was a good party it was awesome all right yeah i, I couldn't thought it was believe a good party. how many people were there with two other metal shows that were going on in other places on right? the same night uh, we still had quite a quite a big crowd that in there, which was, was, which was fun. Busy. They had two bartenders who never quit. Which was what was great about it was was that you know normally when you do uh, metal people throw a birthday party, what do you do? You throw on a show, right? You just a bunch of bands, uh, and that's all. Okay, cool. They might have a cake or whatever. I, I love metal shows. I go to metal shows all the time. I just wanted something a little different and yeah. see, and just to see what would happen, right? You know, I wanted at least one band to play. So we got Venomous Maximus to, to love those guys. They're amazing, man. Awesome. But the metal karaoke thing was great. It was. Nobody needed the lyrics. It turned out. Yeah, I know, it right? Was that so was cool. awesome. It, it was great, dude. <laughs> I thought that was such a great thing. I had more people say they loved the metal karaoke thing. And wish it was going longer. I was like, well, damn, you know, okay, uh, we're going to have to do like a metal karaoke night. Oh, I think totally. we're going to have to start doing it. You could always do it regular. I know. I think, I think we actually could. Cause we, they were pulling off some pretty good stuff, dude. I mean, granted one of my coworkers here at the radio station, uh, doing Limp Biscuit was a little rough, but, <laughs> but, but other than that, that, oh man, our morning show guy decided to, uh, break stuff or something. I, I forgot it was terrible, but. You know, then we had a couple other people. It was a lot of Iron Maiden people, actually. Uh-huh. A lot of people singing Maiden, which was cool. But a uh, bunch of Dio. Uh, I caught other Sabbath. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, I caught a couple Sabbath songs. But that was that was pretty cool, right? Was, I, yeah. I, the, other, the thing that was really the coolest to me was that, like, I don't know who knows you, right? 
But like almost everybody that I saw go up and sing at some point in the song, they had you know the you know during the guitar solo or something. They're like, this one goes out to Chuck. Everybody was dedicating it yeah. to Chuck. Ah, it was cool. It was dude. good. It was a lot of fun, man. People I, really love I, you. I felt good inside. You should. <laughs> so yeah, it was fun. I thought it was a good time, and I got I got a little tipsy, but not too too yeah. terrible. Uh, you know, I, I don't. Th- I think I've consumed so much alcohol in my years that that I don't think I can get drunk anymore. We're gonna find out though on the You're seventy thousand tons of metal. I know, I know that for sure. I'm gonna do, do my best. <laughs> Your wife was warning me. I'm gonna figure. Oh, dude, you better watch out. You had seriously. I am. I am. I am terrible when I'm on vacation. It's like, a big, terrible. It's a big boat. Well, I know, but but I mean, I have. Uh, yeah, I I'm when I get on vacation and I get to where, especially like if I don't have to drive. Oh my God, I just go for it, uh-huh. you know, just go to go crazy on it, you know, cause uh-huh. I'll go down to New Orleans or whatever and go, you know, stay in the French quarter and just, bleh, bleh, bleh. it's ugly. It's ugly. I got to watch this cause so, I have no idea how to have fun. So this is going to be cool. Yeah. We're going to have to, we're going to have to teach you. <laughs> it's like, stop interviewing bands at the, uh, at the poker table, yeah, dude. Totally. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, no, they don't want to know about their accounting. It's like, no, have you started your LLC? No, no, we don't want to know. Uh, somebody that does need to know about their accounting is machine head though, man. That's what, uh, that was probably the big news of this week, uh, was the stuff with Adam Deuce uh, from uh, from Machine Head, who, if you remember, when they split up, uh, Rob Flynn had posted some really in-depth stuff on Facebook about him leaving the band, about how he's been gone from the band for 10 years, basically, and it was scathing stuff. It was very in, very internal. Scathing? Well, I think so, man. I yeah. mean, I think it was telling about it basically outed him for being what didn't he like alcoholism and you know they called him out on a bunch of stuff man yeah but he did it like in this like i'm so sorry i gotta do this man well yeah but but, here's my best bud but flynn is you know what's great flynn is one of those dudes that is like a uh, he, he reminds me in a lot of ways of Zach Wild in the respect that that it's a family you know this is this is a not just a band you're part of the family you know, I ha- you know, I don't want to excommunicate you, but you know, we've been trying to deal with this for so long, and I, I, he has always rubbed me as one of those guys that is that kind of that yeah. kind of way. He cares about the people that are around him and the people who care about him, and that's what uh, that's what that seemed to me. Yeah. But it seemed pretty, which made it even harder to read because if you really love this guy, oh well, crap. You know, this is this is pretty rough. He must have really done something bad. So now, of course, Adam Deuce is uh, suing. Machine Head Corp LLC. You kind of knew that had to happen. I guess, man. At this point, when you're a band that level, it's it's requ- it's a requisite. But it's, I don't know, man. It, it really is it. I mean, because now it's it just seems like sour grapes that you know you didn't you didn't get what you deserve. It's quote negotiation. Unquote. Yeah, I mean, it's gonna get settled. You know, whatever. Oh, absolutely. But I think the takeaway from all, from reading all the stuff about it is, is that, uh, and what I really thought we should talk about is more about bands and how you set yourself up for success yeah. or how you're setting yourself up for failure by not making sure your books are square yeah. and not making sure that you're because you talk about it all the time in interviews and it rubs you know you always rub me i'm like dude why are you asking them about it's so llc important. i know it is it's totally important it's like <laughs> it's such a big deal that if you don't 
if you bring somebody into the band, like we were talking with uh, Trevor DeBraw from uh, uh-huh. from Pelican about you know bringing Dallas in into the band. That's right. I was giving him a hard time about how easily yeah. they it's made like, him what? a part you of made, the corporation. You made him a partner already? What are you talking about? How do you do that? You know, he has I forgot a, about that. And and that right there, you know, is an example of you know when you're bringing somebody in, you fold them in, and you don't give them. You may not give them the past stuff, but from now on, you are twenty five percent. Right. But you know, do you do that as a band, or do you need a third party to? be looking at your stuff to make sure that everything's on the up and up and the, you know where, where it gets really nasty is that is 25 percent. i know there's four people but is 25 percent the right number is it you know are, are they contributing as much music are they contributing as much creativity yeah are, are they contributing you know i think you have to be careful with that though yeah because you that, have to because be. that's where you run into the like the lombardo problem where it's like, well, Lombardo didn't write any songs, so screw that guy. He well, should only get like ten percent. But is it the Lombardo problem? I mean, if like if if they gave him the same amount as anybody else, then you know, uh, uh, uh you know, uh, Carrie King would be like, dude, I'm wor- I'm busting my ass like three times as much as you are. Why do I not get as much money when I'm when the tour is over? I go home and I start writing songs. But that's how those egos are developed. That's how that. That's how those things. That's how those internal strifes start. Oh, absolutely. And I so guess it needs and, to and, be and, defined. And it can work the re- it can work the reverse. Like yeah. if you're not getting enough, and you're doing and you're carrying a lot of the load, exactly. Then you can get upset that way. Or I can guarantee you reverse, that you know. Bono and Edge make more money than the other two douches. Who in U two? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> what other two guys? I'm thinking There's like, two other dudes in U two. What band has no been idea. together with the same lineup longer than anybody? Right. Yeah. That's pretty much. I, I can't think U two, and that's like it, right? Yeah, maybe. And, and I don't and, even yeah. know if that's them. Uh, like, I don't. Yeah, I can't. Th- I can't think of the other two guys that are in the band. Yeah, it's it's the same four dudes since the beginning, okay. like since like 1980 or something. And it's yeah, I can guarantee you that they talk about it, they communicate, they uh, 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 and and they set up something that you know is flexible and and moves and and works for everybody, and that's hard to get to. Yeah. But if you don't talk about it, you don't ever bring it up, and that's the thing that I got out of the machine head thing is. I don't think this Adam Deuce had ever brought up, you know, wh- wh- how much are we spending here before I get well, my piece in net? You know, you know, stuff like that. You're a bass player. Yeah. How, and you're a musician. How much of the money and accounting are you supposed to be responsible for? I mean, you, you should know what's going on with your bank account, but at the same time, you know, you're there, you're making music. Yeah. You know, you're not, you're not accounts, you know, and when you get to a certain level, you gotta you gotta cut your you gotta get a third party in there. Mm-hmm. You gotta get somebody in there to like look at what's going on and make sure that you guys are doing it right. That's a, either a manager or somebody that's outside of even your manager that's doing that because you don't have the skill set to deal with two million dollars coming into Machine Head LLC. Right. You know, uh, and you know, labels a lot of time will hire those people, but even that now is, is oh, you don't want that. You know, more that's even more tight. You don't want that oh. money going through your label than coming to you because then you just just take twenty percent off the top, yeah. or you know, how, however that works, you've got to figure that out. And a lot of bands don't consider that until it's already now we got money coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, what now? Right. Yeah, and uh, I don't think enough think about that stuff ahead of time. I mean, granted, if you're on the bcd level and you're and you're selling shirts to put gas in the van to get to the next show and that kind of thing you're not concerned about the two million dollar concert you did with metallica making the making the money off of that stuff right 25 percent of nothing is nothing so why why bother having the conversation you're happy to get mcdonald's when you get to when you get to your show you know so that's a different level but you have to start thinking about that when 
the balance is in the black versus the yeah. balance being in the red. Because otherwise, otherwise there's going to be arguments. And yep. that's the first thing that'll break up a band is is an argue, argument about money, it, right? It, it, first thing that breaks up a marriage. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. Again, uh, and, and being in a band is pretty much like being in a marriage. It is, exactly. Only it's like infinitely more complicated because you got like four or five or yeah. six voices instead of just having, you know, one other voice. And you get a couple of kids. You know, the bass player, you know, know, that's kind of how it goes. It's all good. But no, I think, I think it's something that, you know, we've talked about it with a lot of bands and it's something that a lot of, a lot of dudes just don't think about. It's funny because I look at the Wikipedia, you know, I was downloaded a boatload of Wikipedia pages today, right? Just looking Mm -hmm. at band and they all have that lineup grid thing with all the lines and different colors. And you know what? It's like almost all the time you can see. That grid tells you who played the instruments. Yeah. But it doesn't tell you who is part of the band. Because the the honest to God truth is that some of these I Slayer, I promise you, with Slayer, Slayer is now two people. It is yeah, Gary King and Tom Mariah. And Tom Mariah. Right. The other two dudes are being paid to hang out. Yeah. Well, they're they're being paid and they're like being contract pro- labor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they're probably being paid well. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. like you know, you look at a band photo and there's four dudes in there. Not really. <laughs> you know, there's really Slayer Inc. is two dudes, and with Machine Head, it, I mean, it, it gets it, it it gets super complicated because there's so many bands where there's one guy who's doing the heavy lifting, and it, man, you know, it. it he earned that name. He earned that brand. Mm. And everybody else is just along for the ride. It happens over and over and over and over again. And everybody seems to think, well, hey, I played on the album and I played uh, uh, on that tour uh, and I worked hard doing that and therefore I deserve an even share. No, there's so much other work that happens behind the scenes. You know, the the, the songwriting, the uh, working with producers, choosing the sounds that are going to be on an album, how you're going to market how you're gonna uh uh what publicist you're gonna use you know all that crap it's a full-time job and if you're not working 40 hours a week on your uh, on your band dude you do not deserve an equal share of that band Mm. interesting and and you know what i do not count the gig as part of 40 hours because that's fun (laughs) and i don't count practicing as part of that 40 hours Mm. Because hmm. that's just developing a skill you should show up to work with already. But do you usually, do, I mean, but every band has got like a, everybody in a band, every band that I've ever worked with over the years, somebody's got the skill set. You know, you got the guy who's a good interviewer, you got the guy who's good talking to press, mm-hmm. got the guy who's good at promotion and Facebook. And and he he's great at dealing with, with Facebook and social media. Then you got the guy who's good at, drinking then well, you got the guy who's good at <laughs> yeah you got the guy like who's socializing good at jack in shit, person should be earning jack shit but but i mean but he still played on the record he, so should, he should be getting something for yeah, it right? he gets paid for appearing on the record they used to start remember when you when you'd see uh the songs who were written by you know it used to be okay this song from metallica uh-huh. was written by metallica yeah uh, metallica metallica then it started to become Ulrich. Uh-huh. And then, uh, okay okay the, 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 the and then it changes to, from like hetfield and Ulrich. yeah or Ulrich, and then the next one's at Ulrich and hetfield yeah, yeah. it would split <laughs> and, then, and then it's that's the percentage of what each person gets out of each one yeah. of those which whose name comes first and everybody's got their own publishing company but it's how much money comes in exactly you know but it's but you've got uh, an army of accountants that's dealing with all that stuff and part and, of the problem is is that you know what for 
999 out of a thousand bands it's never gonna matter right and bringing it up is just gonna piss everybody off it's like it's like it's like a prenup you yeah. know <laughs> but one time out of a thousand you're gonna record that album thinking that 15 people are gonna right. buy it and next thing you know it's got a hit platinum you know yeah. what i mean yeah. and you're sol because you sat there and went hey don't worry about it man yeah i know i contributed to this to that song but i don't care just you know whatever and next thing you know, the other dude's got a house. I don't know. I, I, hand, I hand it to the guys that are like, okay, there's four of us in the band. We're splitting at 25%. I don't care. I don't care. You know, I, I have to give it to, to dudes that can handle that. Like, even the ones that do the, the the heavy lifting or, you know, like that kind of stuff. I, I really give it to those guys because that's, uh, to me, that's admirable. It's like, look, you've four dudes in a band. You're, you're sacrificing. You're all working on a certain level you're doing stuff together like that the hottest bed in land mother Teresa. Uh, like, oh, come <laughs> on man does that <laughs> i I, th- I, th- I think there's a lot of bands out there that do that <laughs> at least they start that way and then when it gets like douchebag and the leeches <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> come on man it's okay dude we're gonna get. We're gonna start talking to Paul Mansville here in a little bit, dude. And we're gonna talk about Buddhism and other stuff, and how you know it's how balanced life and balancing it all together. Yeah, but notice there's two guys who are cynic, and that's it. But that's that's different. We get it. We get into that in the interview, <laughs> uh, and we get into a lot in this interview. Actually, we, do. we really do. It goes all over the place. We talk about. Uh, not only uh, their career in Cynic, we talked a little bit of Death to All, we talked a little bit about 70,000 Tons, we talked a little bit about his career in television, mm-hmm. as well as knowing Sean Reinert and Sean Reinert Reiner being the angry one in the uh, group, but we talked a lot <laughs> about anger, which is kind of interesting. Uh-huh. It's, uh, it's a good little chat with uh, Paul Masvidal. Uh so let's get into that right now on the Metal Sucks Podcast. Paul from Cynic Hey, what's going on, man? It's uh, Chuck and Godless from the Metal Sucks Podcast, man. How's it going, man? Pretty good, pretty good. How you doing? Doing great. Is it record yeah, there, let me Chuck? Make sure, yeah, let me make Hold sure I'm, I've got the record button down here. Have you been recording the whole 20 minutes? We've been sitting here just chatting no, about no, no. all sorts of things. <laughs> well, we've been talking about what we want to talk to you about, actually. So. Oh, good. Yeah. So. Paul, is there a minor chord on this entire record? It's a great record, but it's like the happiest record I think I've heard in years. Well, Deceptively, there's not a lot of major chords, but um, that's, uh, I think it's a good thing if you're hearing a lot of happiness, because that means that you're a happier person. <laughs> so you're saying we just take what we, uh, what we bring to it. Exactly. That's our experience of reality. Is, uh, we're, we're completely, it's a completely subjective uh, gig. No fucking and, way. <laughs> and, music, and music more than ever, you know? Now, now, a few years ago, you guys were talking about how your plan was for Collective to be, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that Cynic to be a collective. Has that sort of been something that you guys have been able to follow through through on, or uh, is uh, not having a regular basis part of uh, the key to uh, making a record that will make me happy? Uh, you know, we had this collective kind of idea that was floating around for a while uh, when we were exploring different people for touring stuff, but... What we found was that just, uh, at least with this record, that it was all about subtraction and reducing it to, again, the essence of Cynic, which was essentially a trio. And 
And then it became all about that with no additions and no no filler, no extra. So it became this kind of pure, stripped-down us kind of at our core without any collective stuff. So that was just thrown around, but it's not really happening at this point. Do you like writing as a trio versus um, adding in those other other layers or adding in layers that you guys provide versus other yeah. other takes on it? I mean, it's funny. Like I, I think that uh, that the root of Cynic, yeah, just the three of us seem to kind of have a chemistry that uh, is so effortless that I think that if we were to get into a collective thing, it would it'd have to be like more about having an, a, a kind of flushed out thing and then bringing someone in for sections, you know, like, hey, do a stack solo here or to knock out a percussion kind of element. So it would be more about guest musicians, I guess, you mm. know, more. But uh, writing-wise, yeah, there's already three very strong-willed controlling kind of intense musicians at the helm and i feel like if we have any more chiefs it'd be a big mess do you feel like you're in a happy place right now is are we hearing some of that in what what's coming out of uh coming out of you guys are you are you happy with where cynic is at and what you're doing yeah i think it's essentially like any cynic record that's happening at any given time is a it's sourced from a huge collection of material that i'm constantly archiving and building because i'm writing all the time and uh, when it comes to kind of making a record, we just kind of curate from this arsenal and uh, and then develop those ideas to create something cohesive that feels like an album and refining those ideas. So, yeah, when I kind of look back and I go, which I haven't had that moment yet with this record, I'm still too close to it, especially now reliving it with press. It's uh, It's definitely a kind of new chapter and a new phase for us and a new uh, color and a new new color palette. And there was part of it was intentional, was kind of, again, deconstructing everything that we thought was familiar for Cynic and approaching things from a new place. And it's still fun trying to figure out what the essence of Cynic was without those signature things. And I feel like we accomplished that. You know, we kind of went somewhere new, and yet it still feels like Cynic. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um... <laughs> And, uh, yeah, essentially, you know, I'm getting better at living and better at not beating myself up as much as I used to. And, uh, hopefully it's reflecting in the music. What do you mean by that? Well, as a kid that grew up in, you know, into all kinds of music, but eventually landed and found myself in extreme metal, I, I certainly went through a extremely self-destructive phase. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I'm still pretty good at uh, beating myself up, but I, I went through a period there where it was horrible. And uh, it was the bowels of probably the darkest depression. And uh, I'm, I'm still touching that. I'm still honoring it, but I'm not as uh, destructive as I used to be. So, But I think that anyone that kind of resonates with extreme metal in general has got some, some deep pain there that they're connecting with. I don't think it attracts super happy folks. Well, um, don't tell my wife that. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, you know, we all have anger, man. And uh, it manifests in different ways. Some of us get to purge and process through metal, and others do it by yelling and beating up our wives. You know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, all, it's 
all relative. <laughs> Do you feel like that's a growth thing for you? I mean, as far as, I mean, I know as we grow, our emotions change. We get, we see depression in a different way, or we see, uh, we see that anger in, in a completely different way. Are we, are you talking about like the, the young Paul? That, that felt that way and you've dealt with that since or do you still feel like you still hold on to some of that now is there are you still working through some of that oh man i'll be working through it for the rest of my life i think the difference is is that now i i accept it i honor it i um i kind of give myself a hug when i feel like a complete piece of shit and um i don't uh push it away you know i've, I've gotten to know my mind a little bit better so i can be a little bit kinder to myself, you know, and uh, gentler when when these these uh, these kind of moments arise. So it's uh, it's more about just developing a relationship with myself that's a little bit gentler, and and I think that's happened over time. But the reality of these emotions and states, I think, inevitably they still arise, and and they're kind of part of the gig, and they're not going to go away, and that's okay, you know. That's the difference is just not uh, fighting them like I used to. Yeah, right. I think at some point you just kind of have to accept that it's part of the part of the machine. Part of the part of the machine, part of the gig, part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. And some of us are more kind of tuned into it than others. And I, in particular, I'm like an empath. I feel like I sponge everything around my, me and my environment, and without even having to kind of. So, you know, I like I try and not watch TV, although I work in that realm as a musician. It's like I try and turn it off as much as possible because I'm picking it up, you know, through osmosis, whether I like it or not, in terms of the news and the reality of, of living and, and then all the historical components of, of being alive and my own story, you know, my own conditioning. So there's just, it's endless, you know, but yeah, you just kind of uh, get better at not... Uh, not hating yourself for having those feelings and thinking that they're not supposed to be there. You know, that's kind of how it's been for me. Obviously there's, there's a difference between uh, what you've written in the early nineties versus uh, as far as far as like metal music and cynic is concerned, a difference between what was out 20 years ago and what you're, what you're doing now. Is that, that the essence of the, uh, of that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, I think like naturally, and I would hope this is true for most artists, um, that are trying to just be honest about a process, you know, it's, uh, of course we're different people, you know, and, uh, our lives change and our minds change, hopefully. And, uh, so, you know, the art that cynic makes has always been reflective of, of who we are trying to be as transparent as possible with that. And not really, I think the, you know, what created focus was essentially a rebellion against the system of death metal, you know, and that, that we were in the middle of, especially in Florida. Here we were kind of gravitating towards in part of the scene, but at the same time we were like, we want to do our own thing. And we did it against all odds. And I feel like that's kind of been the essence of Cynic's motto ever since. We've just, you know, we obviously broke up for a while, but even since we got back together, it's just been about honoring uh, something true and honest about who we are at any given time and just being really real about that. Um, so now I'm, I'm obviously in a different place than I was years ago. And, uh, thankfully I am, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I would be bored to death if I was writing the same crap, you know, as I was back then. It's, uh, it would be the death of, of the group essentially. So we're, we're always trying to kind of stay honest about evolving and, 
and capturing who we are, you know, and, uh, and staying true to that process. And, and what's really interesting is that there is that slender thread that still feels like cynic, and I feel like that's kind of cool, that there's some essence there, regardless of things dramatically changing sonically, but, you know, there's still a lot of uh, through lines there, I think, and most cynic fans can hear that. It, it almost sounds like you guys have thrown away anything that has to do with uh, boundaries, if that makes sense, with what you're doing creatively with Cynic. Was that something that maybe you and Sean had talked about before you reunited Cynic, or is that something that's just happened as you've been writing? I think it's uh, organic. Everything we do is very much organic. Like, we don't, it's not a very, as proggy as Cynic is, it's not an intellectual process for us. It's really driven by intuition and, and feeling. And I, I know that when I started kind of getting into the riffs and kind of producing these acoustic arrangements into, you know, like the Cynic kind of language, I was intentionally, as a guitar player, throwing out the default stuff that I felt like defined Cynic. I said, uh, for myself, I just was bored by a lot of that stuff, having played it and uh, and made plenty of material with it. And I just thought, you know, it's time to kind of redefine how I approach this even as a guitar player. So that changed. Uh, and that was somewhat conscious, but also just, again, staying true to a process. Uh, I don't think that we're too caught up in again, creating, like you're saying, like it is about just being free and, uh, and art for art's sake, you know. I think the moment we draw a line around this band, we're trying to step out of it. And uh, it's been like that, you know, since the beginning. You know, I really think that when I even listen to Focus, it's like, oh yeah, this was all about breaking boundaries and redefining what, you know, stepping out of genre, you know, and not really... And kind of creating your own sound, essentially, you know, not really being in a box. That, to me, is liberation, you know. It's kind of making making things your own and, and trusting in that. Yeah, when you think of Florida, Florida death metal in the in the late 80s, 90s, Cynic is definitely one of those, what? Big question mark next to it. You're going, it was some of the strangest things, uh, things that you anybody had heard and completely different and ahead of its time. Yeah. But then when you come back to Traced and Air, I guess it was what? 2007 2008 when you guys started writing again after 15 years apart it, it has a lot more of that essence from the early years but it doesn't feel like an a, like a it feels like there's years missing it's not like you just picked up where you left off by any stretch yeah i think like the focus thread that's in traced is because we had just toured all the really we just had finished all those reunion tours mm. and it was like focus was really in my bones so I kind of had that as a default, and then I was also in a completely different place as a songwriter, so it was kind of the melding of where we were now with some of these reference points based on what we had been performing and some of that energy, uh, you know, the, the nostalgia. So it, it kind of worked out in a sense that we had toured and done those those runs for Focus because it kind of got, uh, got us back in that world that I had kind of completely closed you know i had never intended to come back to cynic so it was it kind of brought it back into my dna in a way and i was like oh yeah i know how to do this oh this is what we do you know and then it was like oh no what do we do <laughs> i don't know what we do you know so it's kind of it's always about that the big uh, paradox you know that's the i think the goal of cynic is to confuse everybody and challenge everybody <laughs> constantly so what happened in 
94 what was the what was the thing that broke up the band that that made you guys say it was done then well in a nutshell it was a combination of things first off you know as you i'm sure know cynic wasn't a uh, focus wasn't really well received uh few and far between people got it and uh we had some rough tours where it just there wasn't a lot of reciprocation going on it was really hard for us and uh we felt like we were in the wrong world, in the wrong scene, in the wrong place, uh, and uh, didn't feel liked at all. Um, so that was part of it. I felt we felt kind of defeated and uh, broken as uh, as young artists, you know, with uh, the whole world in front of us and a lot of opportunity, a record deal. Uh, you know, Roadrunner was seemingly excited, but we internally were just dying you know just felt like man no one gets this everyone hates us and we don't belong anywhere so there was a lot of that and then there was just this identity that john and i essentially as kids you know we we formed a band at 12 years old 15 years old we were playing gigs you know around our friends birthday parties and so kind of like from that early adolescence into high through high school uh all I knew was cynic. My whole identity was bands and this, these projects and, and this kind of life I built around this identity I built around, around this, this process. And I think part of us wanted to just figure out who we were outside of cynic. So we had the kind of the impetus of, wow, well, this art form just failed. It doesn't really work. And we're, so who are we? You know, who are we without this? So it was kind of a, a, a way of figuring, stepping away from that whole identity and trying to figure out who we were uh, without that kind of cynic attachment and, and the whole, you know, there was just a lot of pressure. The record business was too much. And I, you know, a lot of people were saying, you should write songs like this, including Roadrunner. Like, they were trying to tell us what to do, although they kind of got behind us. There was, so there was a lot of pressure and I don't know. I just felt like we couldn't handle it, and we we just didn't want to be a part of it. And we also wanted to figure out what we were, who we were outside of this project. So it was just kind of like a way of starting over. It must have taken an incredibly hot chick to convince you to do it again, or hot man. <laughs> who was it, and how did they do it? <laughs> who do we thank for that? Um, so no, it was, it was not about relationships, you know, it was really a relationship with ourselves. We just, uh, we were just burnt, man. You know, we were burnt on the whole thing. I mean, it was, touring was hard. We went, you know, we, our first U.S. tour was opening for Cannibal Corpse and I can't tell you how many cities were bottles were thrown at us. Oh yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> and it was just like, get off the stage, fuck you, you know, I mean, it was horrible. It was like a nightmare. So who, you know? so who convinced you to go out on the road over a decade later? I'd say it was a combination of our own weird series of synchronicities that happened and the fans, you know, we, I had a, it was like a weird bunch of things that happened at one time. You know, I was living in LA near 96 and I had, Cynic was gone and, uh, it, was a, it started with a conversation, and I've said this in interviews before, but there was a conversation with an old girlfriend of mine who uh, is like a childhood friend I grew up with. I've known her since kindergarten. I told you it was and a hot met, chick. <laughs> she, she, out of nowhere, just one day, and she's always been this kind of intuitive oracle friend of mine, 
said, whatever happened with Jinnick? Like, what's going on with that? Like, you know, I said, well, it's dead in the water. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's a padlock on that door and just haven't, and she was just kind of asking, just curiously just brought it up. And then there was a, there was a letter from a Russian fan who said, I had a dream, uh, that I saw you playing at a festival and, Anyways, I ended up meeting that kid when we reunited, which was a real trip, you know, oh. the kid that had the dream. And uh, his dream was that we reunited and that it was really amazing and that he just wanted to share this with us. And then a few other things, and then eventually Kelly Schaefer from Atheist calls me and says, we just reunited and people are fucking dying for Cynic and you got to get out there and do this. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. And I was kind of shocked when he called because of all the other things that were happening in this, like, two-week period. So I remember just at one point calling Sean, and I was like, should we do this? Like, it just seems like everything's pointing towards it. And uh, for the hell of it, we just said, why not? Let's get out there. And There's a whole new generation of fans and people that have appreciated this record that uh, we never knew existed, and they didn't essentially exist until we broke up. So it was an opportunity to kind of bring it back to that, to the scene, you know, and uh, to the new scene. And, uh, here we were, man, just kind of doing it. Uh, it was so unexpected. I never, ever thought in a million years that I would be doing Cynic again. I mean, I was, it was just the last thing. And we did it, and it was amazing. And I was like, wow, the scene's come such a long way. And you're just the standards of, of musicianship and the progressive nature of, you know, the exper- experimental music that was embraced and all these cool bands. And it was like, holy shit. It's like, where were you people, you know, 15 years ago? <laughs> it was encouraging. They just lit a fire enough to kind of get back in there and do this again. And it was, here we are, man. I, I can't believe it. It's pretty cool. <laughs> well, what's crazy about it is, is uh, I bet you a lot of those bands would go back and tell you that Focus was one of their inspirations for becoming and, and, and growing out of that. That it just seemed like focus grew before viral was actually viral anymore. You know, it, it really grew out of its own thing and found totally, a place. You know, found a place I mean, a decade later. It's really that's yeah, really weird. No, it was you know here we were like finally you know we made a record. We and I remember it was like people came out of the woodwork, including bands that cited us as influences, which were Meshuga, you mm. know, Opeth. I mean, all these bands that kind of had reached heights of success were citing us as a huge influence and uh it was really inspiring to us because i thought wow these, these people are making cool art and then there was a whole even next generation of bands that were doing it so uh, yeah i feel like we had to go through that thorny forest and you know kind of carve a new path and get really cut up in the <laughs> process and, and break up as a result but it was it was Cynic's weird trajectory that, you know, no one would have ever predicted, <laughs> but it was part of our part of our journey, man, to just uh, make something unique and break up. <laughs> and people, and, and probably part of breaking up was part of the appeal, you know, it was like we make one record and disappear, you know? It's a mystery. Yeah, it was yeah. a mystery to all of us. 
Yeah, uh, you end up being like that guy from Detroit who was a hit in South Africa or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we would have been better off never re, you know, making another record. But uh, honestly, oh no, 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 no. You know, yeah, no, take... but it feels like it, it became the it just like okay, I can do this. I can incorporate this into my life, and I can also like it's all it all works. So it kind of makes sense now, and. uh it didn't for a while there. That's why we stayed broken up. But were you and Sean able to remain friends, remain close after uh, uh, while you guys were sort of in that dead time up for Cynic? Oh yeah, I mean Sean and I have like this weird inseparable bond that I don't understand. It's, I remember pulling his mother aside years ago. I was like, "How the fuck did this happen? Why is he still in my life?" <laughs> you know, it's been way too long. Uh, we, you know, we've had, we're totally different people and yet we have this weird, deep, like, connection that I can't explain musically and, uh, and artistically, you know, we just have this alignment there that I don't, I can't explain. And, uh, it's been a life journey with this guy, you know, I mean, really, it's unbelievable that we've been working together this long. I mean, he, he moved to LA a couple of years later and we, formed a production company and we started doing music for TV and film and we've just done all kinds of gigs, you know, um, it's just been, uh, amazing that Sean is still in my life, but I don't understand it. He's, he really is like a brother to me, you know, he's, he's beyond family. Now, is that production company still in existence? Yeah, we had this original company called MRI, which was Mosquitoe Reiner Inc., and it was like our little kind of production thing. And then we, over the a few years ago, we started this company called Still Motion Music. And uh, we started doing projects under that. We have a website that's never updated, but we need to do that. But, um, but we've just worn a lot of different hats as working musicians in L.A. And uh, that's been really fun for us, you know, to kind of stretch out and be able to kind of do different things beyond being a touring, working band guy. Is that fun for um, you? Is it is it fun to do the uh, the other the other kind of work? You know, outside yeah. of you know making yeah. straight. Uh, I mean, you're still making music, but I love it. I mean, when I first moved to LA, I started doing session work for network sitcoms, and I became the guitarist for a couple shows, Third Rock from the Sun, and that '70s mm-hmm. show, and and, uh, and then I was doing a lot of trailers and commercials and endless kinds of stuff. And uh, what I found was fun about it was. Because being an artist, you know, and being a songwriter guy, it's like that's such a self-indulgent, your vision process that I like this I, process of wearing a different hat and just being like a sideline guy that was, you know, just working for someone else and trying to serve someone else's vision and and uh, and working under producers and directors. It just, it's cool, you know, it's a nice to kind of play that role and uh, it's healthy for me, I think, and and as a musician, I get to stretch in ways that I, I would never expect. Like I just did uh, music for a pilot. And it was a bunch of bluegrass and country music. I mean, it was just like, where else would I get to do this? You know, it's a, uh, so it's uh, it's fun as a musician to kind of be stretched, you know, in different ways and uh, and see what you got going on and uh, and be pushed out of your comfort zones, you know, and have to kind of find find new things. And so it's um. It's really fun. I, I love it, man. I, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's kind of like the perfect marriage of self-indulgent artistry and then 
you know, kind of being a working guy that's really just serving someone else's vision. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful kind of marriage of two different worlds. Is there anything that Cynic fans would be surprised to find out that they've heard you in? They, you know, they hear it all the time and don't realize it's you? Um, probably tons of stuff and some things that I'd be too embarrassed to, to <laughs> even talk about. Um, I've done some really weird things. Well, uh, just one thing you're embarrassed about. Oh, I don't know. Um, let me think about this. There's been, there's been. Uh, well, you'd probably like that. I went. Well, I did a Playboy trailer once a long time ago. That uh, was pretty fun. But, that's kind um, of awesome. All right. <laughs> um, let me see here. It's uh, crazy. We just did the. Uh, well, we didn't do this. Just about six months ago, we did this whole series for the H2 History Channel, the the history of sex, and that was really a trip because we had to do music from literally medieval times to modern pop like sound alike and it was just everything in between you just the history of music was related to the history of sex so huh. it was this like really wild stretch of genres and styles and uh it really pushed us in every direction which was really a trip but let me think i know <laughs> it's a really horrific moment <laughs> where i just needed a job you know and i was like okay i'm i'm gonna do this and i can't even think right now um and i i, I wouldn't want to diss it i have to say you know what i mean right right because <laughs> like, uh it all comes back but um i'm gonna i'm gonna have to start watching the credits a little bit more because yeah. i watched the history of sex and now i'm gonna have to go back and listen to that with a different ear <laughs> i was totally looking yeah. for boobs and not listening <laughs> to the soundtrack it's like oh yeah no it's uh there's a lot there's a lot there um I don't know. We've had a, I've had a lot of songs that I've written for library houses, too, that get played on all kinds of stuff. Like, And I'll get my half-cuff statements and go, oh, wow, I was at the Super Bowl halftime, you know, or the price is right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's weird. And weird kind of moments where just stuff gets used through these library houses and you find out later where it's kind of circulating. But, yeah, I don't know. It's... Uh, it's kind of no. That's I mean that's that's pretty. What's what's impressive to me about that is is that you know still being able to apply art in such a such an interesting way. I mean because a lot of people don't even realize you know how much the soundtrack to The Price Is Right matters or how you know right. the, the, yeah. or how much how how it creates a visual you know on top of it you know and how much it actually matters and and it's just cre- really kind of cool to hear you still have the creativity but to be able to like make money at it <laughs> you know to, it's a yeah. it's a job yeah and there's a real practical side to uh composing in that world that you really are kind of incidental to what's going on i mean especially in television i work for a composer who i remember we'd sit down and i'd watch him like write cues or whatever and write these you know kind of bumpers and little stuff for the shows and i remember one time just like saying he, he did like a scene or something and it, he you know it was like a he did wrote a whole little thing in like 15, 10, 15 minutes. And, and I was like, you're done. He's like, it's only television. Man. <laughs> and I was just like, Whoa. And it was like the reality of, and a lot of film composers in LA, if they end up going to TV, they'll say I'm stooping the television because they, they feel like it's the lowest common denominator because the music is the last thing they think about. You're kind of the bottom feeder in the chain. But at the same time, like, you know, I, I see it like, uh, yeah, as you're saying, it is actually really integral to the whole thing. And as much as people want to downplay it, the music does play a huge role. And especially now with TV getting better and a lot of cooler shows happening, like yeah. Breaking Bad and Dexter and just stuff that's like, 
hip and almost film-like. It's uh, the music becomes really integral to the, to the space, and uh, people don't realize if you pull out what's happening uh, music-wise, it'll affect the whole thing. So, but at the same time, you know what I've always learned is the best composing is super transparent. Like it's it's not drawing attention to itself. It's exactly. completely just supporting it's you know it's seamless it's just kind of part of the whole thing and you're not thinking about it and that's a totally different brain than making music for a band or songwriting which is all about the song and drawing you know it's just the world of this listening experience just to where tv you're just supporting a visual image and you're trying to stay out of the way yeah where you're trying to draw attention to you versus versus become part of the scene Totally, yeah. yeah. So it's really cool to kind of exercise that and practice it. I'm sure it's it. You know, I'm sure you don't want to open up the doors to every musician, you know, on earth. But you can't just like pull up your little car and to a you know a, a closet in L.A. call it a production studio and get gigs. I mean, that must have been just as challenging as standing up and in front of an audience that you didn't feel appreciated by. Oh, dude, it's been. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, as much as I thought I'd come to L.A., I actually moved here because I was going to UCLA. I remember uh, I was on the waiting list for the composition program um, because I was doing these summer classes thing. And then I ended up going to MI, uh, MIT and just saying, oh, I'll take some classes there. Joe DiOrio and some jazz people I like are there. Let's see what's going on. And they ended up auditioning. They gave me a full scholarship and just said, come here as long as you like. You know, you're free to, and I was like, whoa, okay, cool. So I ended up there for a few years, and uh, and they, um, someone through the program there, this girl that was placing students with real-world jobs, hooked me up with uh, a, a famous songwriter. I actually ended up writing a bunch of songs with Terry Nunn from Berlin. Another hunt. Uh, yeah, and that was like a weird kind of journey, and uh, but uh, it was awesome. And it was one of those things where suddenly I was immersed in the Hollywood kind of thing, and then... Uh, you know, a neighbor that lived next to the apartment I was living in was a junior agent, and I told her I wanted to intern for somebody, you know, and she said, uh, oh, I've got this composer that just landed this job, and yeah, you should go interview with them, and next thing you know, I'm working for him, you know, for free. I'm just interning. I was getting him coffee, you know, and uh, and then he found out I could play guitar, and he starts bringing me in, but yeah, this whole town, and essentially, I feel like the whole entertainment industry is built on personal relationships because there's a lot of talent here, man, and the standards are high. And I know a lot of crazy talented people who aren't working. And uh, so it's one of those things where you, you have to kind of hustle and get out there and get your feet wet and meet people. And, uh, and, and you know, I'm not the best at self-promotion, but I found that I've found friends and I've, uh, you know, and really like other colleagues and peers that have, I've grown with. And that's really where it seems that all the gigs come from it's just kind of through uh, relationships it's that know? small world thing totally yeah. man it's always that you know mm-hmm. you think it's this big crazy town but it boils down to like your neighbor and people right around you, you right know, all yeah. right there so how did you get hooked up with uh jim carrey on this uh on the kids book thing i was li- i was checking out the other day uh i'm the musical director for an organization called gate and uh, it stands for the global alliance for transformational entertainment and uh, my friend John Rotz, who's the head of that, um, has as the top guys that kind of spearheaded. John spearheaded the organization, but the two, like, exec kind of 
people at the top of it are Jim Perry and Eckhart Tolle. Mm. And, uh, and I've met Jim a few times over the years and kind of brought into a little events with him around. And when my friend John got the green light to do this gig, he called and just said, I, are you interested in doing some music for this children's book and the record? And I said, absolutely. He's like, can you be at Jim's tomorrow to talk to him? I was like, yes. <laughs> you know? Awesome. And, uh, so yeah, it was again through a through a good friend. Yeah, another um, small world thing, right? Yeah. Totally, man. Yeah. That's how it works. Transformational know? education? It's the Global Alliance for Transformational Entertainment. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah, GATE. G A T E. Huh. So really amazing organization that's kind of trying to uh you know, kind of bringing a whole language to a, a new genre of film and television that just uh is has a trans, you know it kind of pushes for uh, an agenda that's actually a more enlightened perspective you know in the arts and television and media in general and it's really kind of a amazing uh, very high calling the organization they're just doing some really incredible work so it's sort of the entertainment version of conscious capitalism you know John Mackey's thing for Whole Foods oh I guess I don't know I'm not too hip to his thing but. Uh, Perhaps, yeah, just kind of trying to um, to kind of create a new model for the entertainment industry. You know, that's what they're doing. I mean, they even have a whole program starting at a university called Pacifica, which is this really cool school, a graduate institute that's like all about mystical studies and all this. And they, they have like a curriculum they're developing for transformational storytelling for screenwriters and it's amazing what they're doing, man. They're totally on the cutting edge. So what do the people at Transformational Entertainment think of this death to all thing? Well, it's funny. <laughs> like, John's uh, been to uh, cynic gigs before, and he's totally hip to what I do outside of, uh, of, um, of you know, the whole, like, posing side of things. Mm-hmm. And, and he's hip to the death stuff. And, you know, they all, it's funny, it's like, I've been asked this a few times, and there's been some hardcore cynic fans that showed up to gigs, and they're like, how could you be doing this? <laughs> Betraying your and I was like, you know what, man? Like all the aggression and brutality and primitive kind of urgency of death music is really cathartic, and I'm totally. It's like this is a you know form of therapy for me, man. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like I'm having a fall, and uh, you know people don't realize, and I I, I always say this, it's like. Chuck, you know, had his aggression and anger like anyone else, but, you know, at the root of it, he was this actually really sweet, kind of spiritual guy, you know, who just totally purged all his pain into this extreme art form. And uh, and there's something really powerful about that. And uh, so I've been having a ball connecting with it um, and doing these tours. I, again, another thing I didn't anticipate, but I'm finding it's like, man, I still have a lot of anger lodged in me, and I'm tapping into <laughs> some real kind of heavy, primal, heavy, you know, it's just, it's been really good for me because I feel like I'm purging some stuff. What are you mad about? Are you kidding me, man? It's like, <laughs> oh, man, anger. That's, we could just do a whole interview on that. Right? We, wait, our, our clock, we got, we got no clock in here. That's a deep one, man. I mean, there's a great book that uh, a Buddhist monk, a Vietnamese Buddhist monk named Thich Nhat Hanh wrote just called Anger. And um, it's powerful because what I've come to realize is that anger is one of the juiciest forms of energy, you know, emotional energy that a human can have besides depression. 
And if you learn how to wield it, it's, it can make for, it can change the world, you know, but uh, you have to learn how to identify it and not use it as a reactive tool that's going to be used as a form of aggression towards others, but more as a, you know, as an, a form of energy to kind of create something. And uh, I think it fuels a lot of my creative process, especially like, you know, the more aggressive side of, of cynic and all that stuff. It's just, it's um, it's really intense, you know, potent stuff. Um, but, uh, man, I, you know, what am I angry about? Wow. Where do I begin? I, I, <laughs> well, if you've been I, hanging uh, out with Sean since you were 12, I wonder how much of it's his fault. Well, Sean is definitely way more pissed than I am. He hates everybody. <laughs> God, he's, 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 he's really angry, but... I don't know, you know, I feel like I, I don't ever want to, you know, I love this, the, the Buddhist idea that you chose your parents, because it's like that way you're not blaming your parents for mm-hmm. what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to take responsibility for what's going on and uh, and realize that this is your your gig. But, you know, it starts, of course, with, with your family and your upbringing and the dysfunction that, you know, one grows up with. I'm, I'm a kid that saw... Six marriages by the time I was ten years old between wow. both parents. So you know, both parents divorced, remarried three times each, um, and you know that was really a disorienting place for me as a child. And it was uh, it definitely raised a lot of questions. I was hurled into therapy because I was so depressed and so kind of uh, I, I was again. I, I say this. I was really like a sponge and uh, had a lot of. Uh, I picked everything around me and as a result I was a kid that became very uh, reclusive and uh, anti-social and um, I didn't play in the in the park with the kids uh, and I didn't during recess in, in elementary school I would just hide you know I was really internalizing a tremendous amount of pain and picking up all the pain that was around me with my own mother who was suffering greatly going through her own stuff my father, who's been through tremendous cycles of depression, and uh, it was just like uh, an in- intense environment for a, a little artistic child to be in, you know, and didn't have any tools. So I got put in therapy, and that developed. I started developing a language, you know, to my emotions. And I, what I ended up finding, and this is another problem, is that I started to intellectualize all of my my suffering. And, uh, and it became this thing that I could talk about, you know, but I wasn't necessarily being processed, <laughs> you know. Um, so I ended up using music as a tool, which I really believe saved my life. Um, if I didn't have music, I don't know what I'd be doing, you know. Maybe I'd be writing or painting crazy shit, you know. <laughs> I don't know. But it's, uh, and, and so eventually, you know, again, you, you realize it's not, it has nothing to do with your family that. If you, if you essentially chose this path, it's like, okay, how do I, how do I make this work? How do I, you know, kind of surrender to life and realize that it's okay? Everything that's happened in my my experience of being alive is okay, and that uh, that I'm here to just kind of surrender to this experience and to find some sort of sanity, you know, basic sanity here, just to to kind of be. Uh, I don't even like to use the word happy. I feel like that's a loaded term, you know, um, but more just kind of at ease with, with living, with, uh, with what's happening and to, 
to kind of be okay with life as it is and not think it has to be any different. And that's what I've gotten better at. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm pissed about a lot of things, man. I feel like the world's really unjust still, and there's a lot of things that are fucked up. And, <laughs> you, you know, there's that, again, the spiritual perspective that goes, it all falls under this umbrella of it's all perfect, but then there's just like, no, it's not perfect. It's fucked up. And there's a lot of aggression and violence in the world, and, you know, you want to do something about it. So... I mean, I ended up uh, being terrified of death. You know, I had a lot of death issues as a kid um, and had a lot of people die around me. So here I find myself in my early 20s, you know, going and doing volunteer work with dying people. And to this day, I still do that. And it was a way of kind of entering into something that I was terrified of. So it's like I feel like I'm constantly trying to step into the things that freak me out the most. Mm-hmm. And uh, and trying to get comfortable with it, and yoga is that. You know, yoga is putting yourself in pretzel-like positions and breathing. You know, and um, it's all about basically trying to relax in very awkward places. And I feel like that's like a formula for living, essentially, because life will give you awkward experiences and make things uncomfortable, whether you like it or not. The question is, are you going to be able to breathe through it, <laughs> you know, and yeah. not, not, you not know, beat yourself up and make it hellish. And uh, so again, it's this constant journey of trying to, uh, to find a balance with, with being alive and making it work. Do you have a family of your own at this point? I don't. I, I mean, I, I have immediate friends that I would call family, very close people in my life. Uh, but no, no kids. I've had a, some close calls. <laughs> I have a, uh, 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 well, I won't get into too much detail there, but I have a, a, an old girlfriend who actually, who's chosen to raise kids on her own, and she's asked me. I've had two, two friends, uh, female friends in my past, who asked if I'd be interested in basically donating sperm to have a kid with them and I've had I considered it you know there's been some close calls but I haven't haven't done it and I don't know if I will you know honestly it's one of those things where I feel like my music and it becomes my children my guitars my songs you know they become kind of the thing that uh, I end up caring about so I don't know if I'll end up having kids um, it may not be in my in the cards for me you okay with that? Totally. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, I feel like... Um, kids suck. I, I love kids, but it's I don't feel like I have to have them. You know, it's just... It's okay, you know. Um, I don't know. I get to kind of experience them through family and, and whatnot, and, and I'm put around them here and there, and it's an awesome thing. But, I, again, I just don't know if it's something that I need to do for myself. And if I did, I'd have to... It has to be like an organic thing. I don't want to kind of accidentally find myself with a child. And that probably, that definitely isn't going to happen accidentally. So I don't know. Do you have kids? Oh, yeah. Both of us do. <laughs> you both do? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How's it going? Uh, you know, they're they're all assholes, pretty much. You know, but that's kind of how yeah, it goes. Dude, skip the nursing center one of these days that you're volunteering. Go to a daycare center. That'll yeah. get that all right. Out of your yeah, system. you'll shake that one real fast. <laughs> yeah, really yeah. selfishly, Paul. You know, the fact is, is that any kids in your uh, uh, you know near future would ruin prospects of tours for cynic or death to all. And really, that's what's important to us. <laughs> Yeah, what? you know what appeals to me about uh, the idea of children, and I, I can't remember who said this, but some 
some like super self-absorbed, you know, Hollywood actor at one point said, for the first time in my life, I'm thinking about someone other than myself first. <laughs> and I thought that was like, wow, that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, some people get animals to do that. They'll get a dog or, you know, it's like you put, you get to shift your energy on into, you know, something else. And in some ways I feel like the volunteer work does that because it becomes a reference point for me where I get go, Oh yeah. Perspective, man. Like it has, this, mm. my problems are nothing. You know, this is, all of my nonsense, all these stupid things I'm spinning out about are nonsense. They're not worth it uh, when you see somebody who's basically facing the end of their life. Um, and I think a child to some degree does that too because you see how precious life is and how pure it, it, it is when it starts out especially. And um, and I, I feel like that's a beautiful thing. You know, it's an incredible opportunity if a parent can recognize that. Yeah, but it's all downhill from there. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, your teens, you're doomed. It's like once they get to that age, it's just it's hell. Well, I was thinking about it. I was like, well, you know, the crazy thing is you think about it as somebody that you want to impress with uh, with, with your knowledge of the world. You uh -huh. know, it's like my love of radio or my love of music or my love of this or that. And it's like you want to impress them with that. And then all they want to do is is hate you for it. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't work. What's crazy is, is I've got a lot of I'm you know I'm kind of neurotic in certain ways too, and you pass that stuff along too. They're a weird reflection of you when when it comes down to it, and it's it can be very frightening. Whereas the the turnabout, what you're talking about, the end of life care and things like that, you know, you're really seeing somebody for who they are. Yeah, on the other side of that versus creating something <laughs> yeah. a person no i mean i actually worked with kids leukemia kids for a while too which was really intense and and uh babies you know the born to crack mothers there was a whole bunch of yeah. kids uh that had leukemia out of bakersfield california because there's like a whole nuclear thing happening there that i can't believe they haven't dealt with yet because there's like all these babies being born with illness but um yeah, man, it's, uh, I think it, what you're saying is that it, it, it helps shed some more awareness into your psyche and consciousness because you realize that this little thing is sponging everything mm -hmm. from you and modeling folk psyche off of you. It's like that's a, that's a really awesome opportunity for you to stay more awake right. you know, in your life because yeah. now you're... This 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 guy's gig is kind of predicated on, on your gig. You know, yeah. on your planet. So it's um yeah that that's really cool. What do they tell you? What what do people talk about right near the end that either surprises you or that sticks with you? I mean, I've had every kind of experience. I've been with people who died angry, you know, who mm -hmm. died cursing everybody around them and pushed their whole family away. And uh, I was pretty much the only person there besides like a hospice worker because everyone hated them. So there's that version of death, which is really sad. Uh, and then there's people like this last guy that I had who was actually right uh, before I made Carbon-Based Anatomy. He was 80 years old, and uh, he had pancreatic cancer. And when I met him, he had less than three months. But uh, what was interesting about pancreatic cancer is that it it's of all the cancers, it works really fast. So you're kind of like perfectly normal. And then like the last two weeks, it, you just go down really fast. So I had this like summer with them, which was 
hanging out and brought me into his world like a, like a brother, like a friend. Uh, and I was blown away that, with this guy because he so courageously wanted to die with dignity and it kind of, he just was accepting the whole thing and had lived its full, tremendous life and uh, just took me in. And he had a niece that kind of most of his family that kind of outlived his whole family. And he, uh, he had a niece that uh, came out from, um, from the Midwest at some point towards the end there. But these, this, these months with him were like I was with this like, teacher who was kind of giving me instruction on how to die with dignity and how to take a look at your life with, um, with kind of uh, a sense of gratitude at what's happened, all the good and all the bad. And um, I was so moved by the whole experience that um, I feel like I haven't been the same since because I was like, if that, this is how I want to die. I want to die like this guy. Because he, he basically honored the whole process and he was cracking jokes to the end and still asking about how you're doing and totally um, in acceptance of what was happening and in a state of peace and joy and kind of spiritual, like he just had this like state of, you know, it was almost, in, I guess, in a sense of enlightenment with it because he just was completely at ease with with life and with who he was and all the decisions he made and there was just this beauty to it um that guy taught me a lot um his name was chester and um i feel like a lot of the material on uh on on carbon was kind of about that there's definitely a few tunes in there that were directly linked to my experience of him but, you know, you get the gamut. A lot of times it's people who are half there and half not, like advanced Alzheimer's or, um, you know, they're just medicated. The thing with Chester is that he didn't even get any meds. Like, he just took on the whole thing and wanted to experience what was happening in his body. I was blown away by the whole thing. He just was not afraid of dying. He He just looked at it straight in the face and stepped into it you know and it was like wow this guy's biggest badass ever you know did he have certainty about what was next for him or did he uh just sort of very accepting of the big question mark big question mark man total philosophical thinker had you know had dabbled in different things but really had no real uh you know he was like a literature professor in his day really intelligent person who who didn't have a religious practice, you know. I think he just was kind of a inherently spiritual person because of who he was in the world. And um, but no, it was um, unbelievable um, that he just kind of let that all go down. It was like I have no idea what's happening, and, and it's okay. That was so cool. <laughs> you, uh, that's that's amazing. Do you agree with him? Yeah, I mean, I feel like. I want to believe these crazy monks that there's, you know, fucking volumes of texts, you know, especially in the Vedas and Buddhist literature. These guys have kind of conquered death, essentially. And there's a really great book I read years ago called How Great Beings Die. Um, and uh, it talks about all these death stories of, like, uh, you know, these yogis, lamas, and kind of, you know, enlightened teachers and their whole death processes. And it makes me, like, just want to believe that essentially that consciousness doesn't die, 
that form dies and the identity essentially dies, but that at the root of uh, who we are is this kind of ball of energy. That's what drives the body. And, um, and that doesn't die because scientifically energy doesn't die. And, uh, you know, the whole Tibetan book of dead is instruction, the death instruction. And it's, it's about basically learning how to concentrate that energy, your pure consciousness, to go through this, like, pinhole that you see as you're dying and to do this conscious exit into, like, you know, uh, an, an alter, you know, another state of consciousness. So you're kind of shifting form. And it's hard to even comprehend that. You know, because we're so identified with our body and who we are and this, you know, the the, the story of ourselves. But um, I do like to believe that that's what's going on. But have I conquered death? Have I done death practices? Not entirely. Um, I, you know, I'm, I've dabbled with it and I feel like I've died a few times doing ayahuasca and DMT <laughs> because uh, that stuff just, is like a mini death. You know, your whole identity falls away and kind of become a molecule and you have nothing to hold on to. It's like, and they say that the, the first thing, the liquid that comes out of your brain when you die is DMT. It's, a, it's something that's naturally occurring in our bodies. So when you ingest DMT, you're kind of recreating a death experience. So I feel like in some ways I've maybe explored it, but I still don't know, man. Who knows? You know, we don't know until we do it. Right. Will you call us when you figure it out? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'll give you a ring. (laughs) Yeah, let let us uh, us know, man. (laughs) This movie, uh, Transcendence, I think it's called. Oh, yeah. I love that, because it's kind of this idea, right, that they kind of preserve the consciousness of somebody and put it in an operating system. Oh, yeah, um, because that's the Ray Kurzweil thing. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, Singularity and all that stuff. And um, Hers, awesome. I love that movie. Still haven't seen that. I want to yeah, see that one as well. Too. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. Paul, we're going to see you in a couple of weeks. We'll, oh, yeah? We'll be on the 70,000 Tons of Metal. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we're going <laughs> to be on the boat. We're going we're gonna to have to talk a little more uh, existential. <laughs> I'm, I'm just hoping Chuck isn't contemplating, you know, seeing what death does while he's got me perched over the uh, side of the boat. You know what I'm saying? Oh, man. It's going to well, be a crazy what, time. What, what's your strategy? What's your plan? I'm so excited about this thing, man. It's like, you know, I've been hearing about it for years. I know some other bands that have done it, and it's leaving from our hometown, so I get to see my, my folks, which is great, too. But, um, no, it sounds insane. And I was talking to a friend of mine who does the merch for it, and I was like, who the hell goes on this thing? And she's like, well, it's a lot of Germans, <laughs> you know, like, like European, you know, people taking their, they're getting out of the cold. And, you know, I was like, oh my gosh. She's like, yeah, a lot of like spikes and leather. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, <laughs> that sounds frightening, you know? And she's like, no, it's really mellow and cool and uh, fun. And But I'm excited just because the idea of, you know, again, it's like you don't, not, you're in this like mini city, you know, that's floating. And uh, and I love the immediacy of, of meeting people and kind of that whole dynamic. And so we'll have to find each other, man. Definitely, man. Uh, well, you're like the ultimate musician. Are you like uh, you know putting word out to some of the other bands and stuff like that, and going, "Hey, man, let's jam in the casino," you know, or something? I know. I have. I don't even. I haven't reached out to anyone about it. I you know this whole thing kind of came together in the past week for us. Yeah. So we're just now kind of getting our bearings, but. 
I should kind of do some more homework and see what the hell is going on with this thing because well, uh, I'm excited. We, we could do something like really cool jam session in our see, our, our cabin, see, right? I just want to see what 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 karaoke song Paul oh, would sing. Question. You know what, yeah. what 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 if you could choose any karaoke song? What's what's the one, right? I don't. You know, it's funny. I was just invited last week. A bunch of my friends they go and get hammered at this place in Little Tokyo um, in LA, and they they do get a room and they just drink and do karaoke and i was like my text back to the friend was i don't do karaoke and all that <laughs> <laughs> and uh but you know they wanted me to come because i'm one of the you know musicians in the group and it was like you have to do karaoke and it's like fuck no i'm not doing that you know i don't know maybe I on the boat <laughs> i, I want to hear you sing the things we do for love by 10 cc <laughs> i'll even do the backup for you things we do for love yeah exactly <laughs> No, I could do like yeah. a, a maiden song or something. See, you know? that would like, work. I could hear you. I could hear you do that. Right. <laughs> you know, Nothing by Hall Notes. <laughs> oh no, I don't know. Okay. I'm a family man. Ironically, <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, it's been great talking to you, man. We'll definitely try to you know find you on the boat. New album comes out in February, February 14th, I believe. So, uh, kindly yeah. bet to free us is the name of the new record. And Paul Madsville on the Metal Sucks podcast. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, guys.
kindly bent to free us the title song from the brand new album from Cynic on the Metal Sucks podcast. That that album is is pretty it's pretty amazing. It really I is. hope lots of people pick this thing up. I I honestly think that it's it's so not metal though. It's it is just not metal. It, well, I would, I've been talking about this Alcest album. Same thing. It's yeah. like not metal. It's but that's okay. No, it's it's noodly and awesome and like yeah. yes. But what were you saying about like you not sure if it has legs? I kind of yeah. I kind of agree with that. I don't know. I but I th- I think as a fan of Cynic, like I'm I'm in. Yeah, hundred percent. Exactly. Just is it going to get new fans? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. But I don't think that's you know, I don't know after, that ta- after talking to Paul. Do you, I mean, do you, do you do you think it matters? I don't think it matters. No, I, I think, really don't think I, it matters. I think he's just like you know what this is kind of what we want to. It's where they are. Yeah, what it's we want to make this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And, you know, we slapped the cynic name on it, so we know we can break even on the studio time, and that's it. Which is awesome to me because you know, like we had talked about in the interviews, just being able to make music and not have to worry about yeah. what comes of it. You can just do it right and create, and it's like that's kick ass. And how great is it that you know they put out that first album, they put out Focus, and that's all they cared about. You know yeah. what I mean? That was so important, yeah. and that broke up the band. And they were able to come back to and it years what it later. Did and yeah, what and what the 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 experience that they've had since then, and how it changed everything. It's it's pretty awesome. It's funny. I, I listen to Focus now. I think I listened to it for the first time in like ages uh, earlier this week. And I, man, I I get that same feeling. Like I don't think they really cared what people would think when they heard it. Mm-hmm. It's so out there. But, but then, then they to hear did. Him, yeah, but then to hear him talk about yeah. the response and like how they how bad they felt. Yeah. Was like, whoa. That, that's that, that's just crazy. I, you yeah. know, I almost wonder like with, with bands, like how many times you, you you write music, you write music, you write music, you get into the studio, you record it. You know, it never quite sounds the same way you had it, in your head. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and getting to that point and going, you know what? I really like this, but I don't think my audience will. And I don't want to face my audience not liking what I do and then trying again, doing something different, throwing it out, you know? But if you're in that situation, you don't even have an audience as far as like, you don't have right. an album out. You don't even know. Yeah. You know, and, and, that, and sometimes that, you put out the album that you want to do and everybody hates it right now, but give them time. Eventually they come right back to Which it. is what, you know, which is what happened. Which is what we you know, created an entire genre of metal. Yeah. Like, like spawned so many different things. And created so many different things out of it, and they had no, you know, wasn't even privy to it. Yeah, you know, meanwhile, like, yeah, it's, it's just insane. There's, uh, there's other bands like uh, there was a band called Fuct. I forget what they were, what yeah, it stood yeah, for, yeah. but like really, really weird and out and the whole thing. And you know, nobody, yeah. <laughs> nobody likes that album even now. Yeah, and yeah. it's like it's too bad because that's a band that I would hope would have the same sort of thing happen for them that happened for Cynic, you know, yeah. but. Uh, what are you gonna do? You know, you never know. Oh, we gotta wrap this podcast up, man, because we're way long with that uh, long seventy thousand tons. Aren't you glad we're I, not in the car driving right now? I am so glad. <laughs> I am so glad we decided to uh, to catch an airplane <laughs> instead. <laughs> so that's gonna make it make life a little bit easier. We're man. hoping we'll be at Imana Mars. Uh, hopefully, that's gonna. Ha- that's Although gonna that happen. would be yesterday, uh, yeah, based on when this goes yeah, out we'll, there. We'll yeah. see. We'll see how that goes. And yeah. by this, by the time people are hearing this, we will be. Uh, we 
we'll, we'll be sailing the seven seas. Or standing in line. Uh, probably yeah. standing in line, but but still, it's yeah. gonna, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be pretty awesome, man. So we're gonna we're gonna gather up a little bit of stuff on the boat. Talk to a few bands while we're on there. We're gonna talk about our experience. We might even record a couple podcast segments uh, while we're on there. You know, do a little bit of work. Yeah. You know, in between, you know, getting my pail skin in the sun right maybe do the belly flop contest yeah. that'd, that'd be gonna, but yeah looking forward to this uh, it's gonna be uh, a hell of a good time so yeah. yeah it could be could be interesting it could be very i don't know man i don't know what to expect i've heard a lot of great things about it so i'm just starting to get yeah let's get excited about it now. i'm like all right cool Oh man, and My, then uh, and then next week, uh, of course, we're going to have Zach Wild on the podcast. Um, very cool. Talk to Zach Wild about the new album and uh, Ozzy and a few other things. So yeah, his his status as the friendliest man in metal. Hey, dude, he is, so is. He's such a nice guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, so we'll talk about all that with uh, Zach Wild next week. Listen to a new song from his uh, from his album. What is it? Uh, Catacombs of the Black Vatican. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That sounds awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, make sure you subscribe to uh, the Metal Slicks podcast on iTunes. Uh, just search Metal Slicks podcast. You'll find it on iTunes if you want. And of course, you can come back to MetalSlicks.net every single Monday, and we'll have you uh, a brand new podcast talking about BS and whatever the latest news is or what's on our mind and, uh, and you know, the latest and greatest stuff, man. In the meantime, you can always follow us on Twitter. At Bearded Ape is what is mine yeah. for Chuck. And I'm at, at Godless, Godless Speaks on Twitter. So uh, follow us on Twitter and yeah, enjoy. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you on the other end of hi, the boat. Hi-ho. Yar. <laughs> Let's go sailing. The Metal Sucks Podcast. Podcast.